0: visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlaps. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. In today's episode, we discuss the progress and future of the Next Generation Jammer, the Navy state-of-the-art replacement for the venerable AOQ-99 jamming pod, currently on EA-18G Growlers, and the EA-6B Prowlers before that. Uh, for an inside look, I have with me Captain David Reeder, Program Manager for NAVAIR PMA-234. Before I introduce my guest, I want to thank our episode sponsor, Raytheon Intelligence in Space, delivering disruptive technologies that their customers need to succeed in any domain against any challenge. Their Electronic Warfare Systems product line offers best value, combat-proven solutions in electronic attack, electronic protection, and electronic support. Learn more at raytheonintelligenceandspace.com. and Space.com. All right, I'm pleased to have with me Captain David Reeder, Program Manager for PMA 234, the airborne electronic attack portfolio in nav air that includes the next generation jammer captain reeder it's great to have you on from the crow's nest thanks for joining me
1: it's great being here ken thanks very much
0: it, it's been a while since we've been trying to to get this episode going here because of of course AOC convention then we had all the the you know, COVID and holidays and winter weather. So it's, it's great to have you on. We have a lot to t- talk about today. Before we got started, I was just telling you a little bit about, you know, we're also working on a History of Crows episode on the ALQ 99, which some fantastic information that you helped contribute to, obviously, a few months before. So I thought, you know, basically to start off, I want to kind of backtrack before we get to ne- Next Gen Jammer. Let's backtrack a little bit to really talk a few minutes about what the Next Gen Jammer is replacing, the ALQ 99. It's entering its 50th year. It's changed tremendously over those those decades, but it still does a really good job. And it's going to need to keep doing a good job for years to come. So could you tell us a little bit about the ALQ99 today and, and where it's come recently?
1: Yeah, uh, of course. So uh, ALQ99 today is deployed. Uh, it is our one deployed system that's out on the pointy edge today. Every day, the team is working on Uh, what you would expect, right? Sustainment, trying to make sure that we still have viable repair sources. Because it is 50 years old, it breaks. So we talk to the fleet up in Whidbey Island, you know, several times a week, trying to make sure that we're doing everything we can to keep the the systems operational and performing. Um, At the same time, you know, we do have a couple other Initiatives to try to keep squeezing that last little bit of capability out, right? We're, we're not doing big things to it, but we're doing whatever small tweaks we can to just keep making it more lethal and more effective. So, yeah, you mentioned Next Gen Jammer, uh, both mid band and low band are, are two big ACAT 1 development programs. Here in the program office, the multiple plates that I'm spinning, I'm, I'm trying to keep those development efforts going at the same time, trying to keep the ALQ 99 system. Uh, sustained and effective.
0: When we were talking about the aoq 99 in the history efforts, what was interesting is you know it was originally designed to to face off against a very specific threat. Yep. And obviously, it was upgraded as threats expanded. And stuff. but one of the things that it kept seemed to happen was like you know you you'd want to say okay, we need to address this particular threat. And then you have the AOQ 99 and you find out that it is really more effective than even originally planned to be as in terms of keeping up with the threat. It, it was always something that I think the Navy and and the joint forces really fell back on as like, hey, we have this capability that can do actually more than we originally thought it could do. And it was, so over the decades, you know, a, a lot of emphasis, a lot of reliance was put on that system which is great from a capability standpoint, but also obviously you mentioned, you know, it breaks down. It's used heavily. So can you talk a little bit about the threat environment today? So what are some of the key threats that we're looking at that the next-gen jammer needs to address that maybe the LQ99 isn't able to today?
1: What I'll say about the threat environment in general is we have seen a huge acceleration in... The numbers of systems that are being produced and the different capabilities of those systems. If you look on the radar side, as you know, lots of radars have gone to AESA. Pretty much every radar being put out today is AESA's. I refer to those as software-defined radars. You know, everyone talks about software-defined radios. Well, AESAs are really software-defined radars. And what makes them so difficult is you can observe a waveform that they put out and then. The next day, it could be completely different because it's just software, right? That's not where we've been in the past. And in the past, we would observe something and we'd have some time to work on a counter before that signal changed again. Another thing that goes into it is just the explosion in microelectronics. So the the commercial industry and as, as we move to the metaverse, like my kids say, that whole infrastructure is also aiding the military radar market. I just got a threat brief last week, and and I'll say one thing that shocked me was I did not realize the rate that our adversaries are putting out radars. Uh, The briefer made a comment that, you know, historically, we would see a new radar, maybe a couple new radars in a decade. Now we're seeing three to four new radars every year, which just complicates my problem because I now have to deal with all of those.
0: Yeah, and, th- and that really gets to the the notion that you know our adversaries are focusing a lot of time and attention and resources to gaining that su- that that advantage in the electromagnetic spectrum. Yeah, um, making sure that from the from day one of whenever a threat might activate, you know they they can control and operate and maneuver in that spectrum, and we have to be ready on our side.
1: Right, and, and it goes back to something you said earlier, which I think is really important when you were talking about how we adapted the ALQ 99 to other threats. The the way that we do acquisition today, we we work on design reference missions and we have specific threats we're going after. And, and, you know, that's one of those things that I keep reminding our team is yes, you have design reference missions, yes, you have specific targets you're designing next gen jammer to go against, but don't forget to build in that flexibility, that capacity so that we can adapt it in the future. Uh, much like we've done with l q 99
0: You talk about, you want to be able to bake in kind of where you think the system's going to be going in, in, in a few years. And, and one of the things we were talking about with the ALQ-99 is, you know, when I was on, I, I came from Capitol Hill, of course, and 20 years ago when we were talking about the high demand low density aircraft you know coming out of prowler coming out of Kosovo we needed to a new platform came up with the E18G Growler you know kind of the the notion was that okay well we're going to continue flying the ALQ99 on the Growler in the early 2000s that was the plan but the even back then the notion was we need to find a replacement at that point it was 30 years old so you know we're now here in 2022 20 years later Next Gen Jammer is coming out, but we've been talking about this need for this next generation capability for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So like, why has it taken so long to really drive that, this new capability into the field? Because I know that, that terminology, at least Next Gen Jammer as a name, if not an actual system, was talked about for a long time.
1: I'll say coming into this job, I had a similar question, like, hey, why is this taking so long? what I've been educated on is how hard of a problem it really is. And and that's because what next generation jammer mid band and low band are going to bring is significantly higher power. And why do we need higher power? It's because things are happening at longer ranges. You know, I I used to be able when I was a Lieutenant, I was able to get ALQ 99s in really, really close. And so it, it diminishes by, R-squared, so when I'm really close, that power was good enough. Because of the kinematics of the threat systems we're facing today, we're getting pushed off farther out, so I need more power. Talking about the number of threats, the other thing NextGen Jammer is bringing is pure capacity. The number of assignments that uh, a mid-band pod can generate is much higher than what ALQ99 pods can do. So it's it's bringing a lot more capability Now, what's really hard about that, I think we would naturally think that what's really hard about it is the arrays, the AESA technologies. Actually, what's really hard about it is just pure power and cooling Um, to generate that amount of power with that kind of duty cycle. Because it's not like a radar where you send out a high power pulse and then you listen for a majority of your time. You are transmitting at a high power rate a majority of the time it just generates a lot of heat and requires a lot of electrical power, uh, which is where most of our challenges have been.
0: Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background?
2: Yes, and thank you for having me. BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response. Advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community, for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research, and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Lab specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high level sense making. Up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision making support. And one of the key differentiators about BA Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter.
0: This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology and for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field?
2: In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA systems, electronic systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011 and in that movie, Aliens it had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world.
0: This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you?
2: Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work classification levels, but in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at
0: basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. So, so let's uh, let's dive right into the next-gen jammer specifically. You already started talking about it, but let's, let's dive into the mid-band first because there's really three different phases. Obviously, the mid-band is the most present. Mm-hmm. So could you talk a little bit specifically about the capabilities that the mid-band, next-generation
1: jammer mid-band brings to the fight? Yeah, so next-gen jammer mid-band, like, like I've already mentioned, the power that it generates, the number of assignments it generates. One of the other significant improvements from ALQ-99 is the operating range, the operating frequencies that it goes over. Like when we talked about ALQ-99, it's really a system that's made up of multiple building blocks. Uh, we call them WRAs, but you know each pod has two transmitters. Each transmitter has a specific frequency range it operates off of. So the mission planner, before we go flying, we make our guess as to which frequencies we need, give it to maintenance. They upload those specific transmitters into the pods. Things change. Scenarios change. Next-gen jammer, now you're going to have a ship set because we refer to, you know, the two pods as one ship set because they do function as one system. You're going to have one ship set that's going to be able to cover, I think it's four or five different ALQ99 frequency ranges. Because when, when we were looking at the requirements, uh, and I'll admit I was a member of the analysis of alternatives in 2008, so you're right, it's been a long time. One of the big things that we said was important to us is no missionization, I, i.e. I can't add specific capabilities per the mission. And that's another big thing that Next Gen Jammer is going to bring is the fact that you're going to have one system that's going to provide capability across a broad frequency range.
0: And, and so what is the status in terms of delivery and over the next, you know, in 20, I guess we're in 2023 now, yep. but moving forward in the next few years, what is the, the, the uh, delivery schedule?
1: So on the test side, uh, we are hot and heavy in flight test. Uh, I was actually down at the hangar yesterday afternoon looking at some of the test aircraft. So we're, we're knocking out test points. We're verifying that it works um, and meets all the re- requirements in terms of the design of the pod, the design's done. We achieved milestone C uh, last summer. So we are in low rate initial production. In December, I had the opportunity to travel down to Forest, Mississippi, which is our prime contractor is Raytheon uh, and Forest, Mississippi is where the production line is. So I got to walk the production line. It was amazing. I, I tell you, every uh, stand or rail was full with uh next gen jammer, mid band shapes in some form or the other. So, um, we're, we're in that stage where the production line is just ramping up. They're, they're, you know, increasing their capacity, and then on the flight test side, we're we're finishing the test program. Like I said, the hardware design is all done. There might, you know, potential for some small tweaks depending on what we find in flight test, but we're really trying to lock down those final software configurations. So that that's what's changing throughout the flight test program. And
0: when is the schedule to go into a full rate?
1: So we're looking for a full rate production decision towards the end of calendar year 23 that lines up with uh, where we're currently projecting IOC. I'll tell you that I am leaning on the team pretty hard to see what we can do to pull that left. Uh, I'd really like to see IOC earlier in calendar year 23. And because we're in production, we should have the pods to do it. It's just can we do the right testing? Can we test smartly so that we have enough confidence on the system we're ready to field it?
0: You know, you talk about, you know, getting the right testing done and, and at at a pace that allows you to both kind of check all the boxes but also then make the whatever changes might need to be made from the testing. Right. What are some of the steps that you think need to happen to 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 accelerate that testing? Um, is, it, is it just a matter of funding, or is it a matter of, do you need to add days to a year? <laughs> or like how, what is really kind of driving that schedule?
1: I'll say that our, our test program now, when it was laid out years ago, it was, okay, here are all the aspects I need to test. And uh, a large majority of our test program is what we call aeromechanical, right? Your flying qualities, your loads, your noise and vibe. And a lot of that's because we have a pod that has four, each pod has four sets of doors, or I'm sorry, two sets of doors, four doors, that open and close. We have a gigantic spinning ram air turbine that generates all that power we need. And so there's a lot of concerns about stress loads, vibration, fatigue life. So that's part of the reason the air mechanical program is so big. To answer you on what what we need to do, now going, I'll say Nav Air in general, uh, a lot of us are, are starting to look at we really need to get involved with the fleet because I th- Roto's opinion. What, what we've done a poor job of in the past is not giving the fleet their opportunity to show the operational risk. We come back and talk about the test program we need and say, well, I need to test this because this might fail and I need to test this because this might fail. We, we, we analyze those risks to death. But we never talk about, well, what's the operational risk of not having it? So that's where we're trying to bring the fleet in and go, ALQ99 is 50 years old. We know that you need something else. I might be able to, just as an example, you asked for it to go up to 0.9 Mach. I could give it to you to 0.85 Mach and two months earlier. What do you care more about? Do you care more about two months or do you care more about 0.05 of a Mach on um, and, and really give that choice to the operator. Because uh, in the end, they're the ones that's going to have to live with it. And, and could you also,
0: like, you know, basically scale some of that final, uh, I would call it upgrade, but you kind of adjustment to the system where you can deliver some exactly. and then let that sp- kind of spiral and, right. and improve in the field as you need it or when you need yep. it?
1: And, and, you know, we've done this before, right? I remember being in the fleet as a junior officer when uh, the Super Hornet first fielded. And when the Super Hornet first fielded, it didn't have a lot of approved loadouts. It, it had some limitations. And it was, yeah, we'll get to that. And, and it took a couple of years of follow-on testing, but eventually we cleared much more capability on Super Hornet. So that's the conversation that I really want to have with the operators is, what do you no kidding need on day one? What can we afford to keep working towards so that you can get something fielded now or get something fielded sooner yeah
0: and then you, you you can you can test all you want in a controlled environment but there's not there's no replacement for in the field operational uh, experience to kind of see how it responds when you need it to respond yep at, at the pace that the navy needs it, so that, that that that's interesting i think that i think that's something that you know from an aoc perspective too i think is is good to follow because i think there's a lot of opportunities For the community in general, when I say the community, you know, the defense industrial base and DOD to kind of come together and really look at how we test and how we get through that testing regimen. Because you, you mentioned earlier, like, well, it was laid out a few years ago. Anything that's laid out a few years ago, no matter what you're talking about from technology, testing, evaluation, whatever, if it's laid out a few years ago, it probably needs to be adjusted in order to get capability in the field faster because, uh, you know, we move too slow. And I I think that, you know, there's many examples, but, uh, it's good to see that the Navy is having those conversations now
1: from satellite constellations to command centers, from space-based sensors to weather tracking, from digital twins to directed energy at Raytheon intelligence and space. You'll push the limits of science and engineering and build a rewarding career. Positions are now open for top talent like you. Up to $50,000 sign-on bonus for select positions. Apply today and transform tomorrow. Visit rtx.com slash risjobs. Raytheon Intelligence and Space.
0: So moving on then, so we have the mid-band, and then, of course, you have two other phases coming out. So the the next one will be the low-band jammer. So where, where is that, and how does that, what, different capabilities that offer from the mid band specifically in terms of addressing threats.
1: Low band's going to have the same general capabilities that mid band does, you know, still more power, still a broader frequency range. Now, low band will replace only two ALQ99 transmitters, but it's a very important frequency range, right? Going down low. Same thing with number uh, capacity, number of assignments, right? The the low band will be able to generate many more assignments because bo- both of those things I mentioned, power and capacity, number of assignments, those are our KPPs. And it's important to remember that the next gen jammer capability design document, the CDD, it's one CDD that covers all three increments. So, you know, the KPPs for mid band are the KPPs for low band because it's all the same document. As for status, uh, it is delayed because we are uh, still in the source selection process. There was a competitive award made. Uh, it's been protested, uh, and um, I'll just say that it's still in still in the courts, still being worked out. But uh, you know, one thing I keep telling the team is the urgency hasn't gone anywhere. the The fleet needs this pod, and so let the process work itself out. Don't fight the legal process. But the minute it's over, we got to be ready to run because we're not going to be able to just say, oh, we lost a year and a half because of this, so I'll move my IOC a year and a half. No, we've got to hold IOC because the fleet needs it.
0: And, you know, the whole process that's underway, you hate the term, trust the process. It's all over the sports world, and I can't stand it because… My teams always suffer from it, but mm-hmm. when you talk about the process, I mean, it, it is a pretty common process that yeah. is playing out too. I mean, it's a lot of times when you look at acquisition news and you're like, "Oh, there's a protest or something." You're like, it, it doesn't necessarily mean anything negative to the system. It can play with the timeline a bit, but it's a very common uh, process that does have to play out. Yep, I think one of the one of my concerns is. The effects, the, the second and third order effects that it might have, particularly with funding. You know, when you talk about, you know, defense budget, we're still dealing with, you know, year, you know, FY 2022 funding, you know, in, in the appropriations, How do you continue funding throughout the year? And, and if Congress gets involved and sees a slippage, do they understand why? So that they can make sure that the funding is there. For you to stay on schedule because you have control of the process you know what's going to happen and how it's going to play out and you can make that time up but do all the other parties that are involved in that process understand what's at stake
1: and i will say we have had amazing support uh, from both congress the staffers as well as OPNAV, our resource sponsors so on low band i could not ask for anything more They've asked the right questions. We've given them the answers. We're, we're all working together. So what you just described as a potential pitfall, that, that's one thing on low band I'm actually very comfortable with, uh, again, because of the amazing support we've had from Congress.
0: And that's great to hear because that's not always the case in, with systems and uh, you know throughout. So, I mean, it's, it's great to hear that. And, and hopefully that continues because this is a critical upgrade that we need in the field as soon as possible. So that was low band. So then the, the third increment, of course, is high band, and that's a little bit further down the road. Uh, what is the timeline for that, and what are kind of some of the next steps in the near term that you're looking at on that on that increment?
1: We're having, I'll say, robust discussions about that with OPNAV. You may have seen that the, there was NDAA language this year asking about high band. So we we answered that uh, with a report to Congress, and that's really gotten us thinking about what does high band need to be. It's a challenging problem. Again, getting back to the threat, uh, I talked about the number of threats and, and the plurif- proliferation of systems out there. But another thing is that threats are also moving in the frequency spectrum. So we, we've seen threats, some moving lower, some moving higher. So you know, perhaps a decision a couple years ago about, well, we can wait on high band. It's not that important. Um, that might be changing the calculus. As to what we're doing about it, we've laid out to, again, OPNAV and Congress in our report that th- there's a couple options. There, there might be opportunities to perhaps do some sort of change to midband and extend it a little bit higher in frequency, but that's going to come with trades. It, it might not meet the power requirements. It might not meet um, the field of regard requirements. There might be other programs or other systems that are in the high-band high space. So I could go give you a full high band program that looks a lot like mid band and low band, but do you need that if these other systems deliver? So it, it, it's a hard question. I've kind of laid all that out for OpNav. We're really going to have to work together to figure out what is next gen jammer high band need to be and what other systems perhaps could, could play into it. We, we definitely need to do something because as I keep reminding everyone until high band Fields we're flying AQ99s now, now. Granted, it's only going to be one particular transmitter, but I'm flying 99s until the 2040s, unless we get moving on a high band solution.
0: And and what's that do in terms of planning for the Navy? You know, you have next gen jammer, new system. You have mid band, maybe low band by the time, but you're lacking high band, so you still have to ha- fly in some number. The, the 99 what does that do in terms of sustainment and operations and just the challenges of still having the 90 having to deal with the 99 you know maybe it's five or more years down in, into the future I mean how does that affect your planning and, and funding?
1: It really drives up the sustainment cost for the Navy if you think about it, each each thing that you're sustaining, there's going to be some fixed amount of sustainment cost. whether I have one LQ 99 or 400 of them. If we're still deploying with a number of ALQ99s, I'm still going to have to employ engineers, logisticians to maintain those. So that's really the trade-off or one of the trade-offs in the high-band discussion of, hey, look, if you don't do full high band, you're going to be paying this ALQ99 sustainment bill for quite a long time. And, and like we talked about how old it is, it just keeps getting more expensive and more expensive. I mean, we're, it's not quite 386s, but we're, we're really stressing the industrial base of, hey, nobody uses these traveling wave tubes anymore. And I'm going, yeah, but I need you to keep producing them because I still use them.
0: Well, and and it's you know, you, you raise the, the the capacity issue in the industrial base too, because you're you're right. You know, not only are you do you need the industrial base to continue to produce the some of those legacy pieces, but it's really costly for industry to do that because they can't they don't have a mass production of them. It's only relatively small amounts, and that's puts a lot of stress on the industrial base too. So they want to actually be producing state of the art technology. Uh, So that they can do it in large enough with a large enough capacity to actually uh, do it efficiently. Um, And they can't do that. with So that cost gets passed on and everything. So it it gets to be a a very uh, expensive venture very quickly if you're trying to maintain or sustain a, a legacy system. Yep, absolutely. So, so you mentioned the the great support that you've gotten from OPM and Congress, which is great to hear. You know, we just uh, had the NDA passed by Congress back in December. Still looking to figure out all FY twenty three funding, and of course, you know, looking into the next fiscal year, uh, which is going to be upon us in September pretty soon. Here, uh, <laughs> the next six months, I'm sure will go, go by very fast. So, uh, looking forward, what are some of the uh, funding? levels that, that you can talk about now in terms of the next couple of years for your program office for
1: NextGen Jammer? So overall funding level uh, for PMA 234 is uh, actually pretty level. I don't think we planned it this way, but if you look at how low band is ramping up and mid band and EMD is ramping down, um, they pretty much balance each other out, w- w- which is great. Yeah, it means that the dollar account's constant. Uh, what I care more about, though, is the people. So what it gives me the flexibility to do is as the mid-band development program is finishing, I can take those experienced mid-band people and move them over to low-band at the start of that development program. So that's kind of the general uh, flavor. You know, one one thing that we're still working through with our resource sponsors is how we fund that follow-on development uh, and, and it is funded for mid-band, but, you know, we're having that debate of what's the right level of funding. Um, you talked about how we uh, need to constantly adapt to to new threats and use think of new ways to attack things. You know, one, one thing we haven't talked about yet is our JADO organization, the Jammer Technique Optimization organization, which also falls under me at 234. So that is... We're really looking at, okay, how is JADO going to support mid-band and how are we going to keep evolving those jammer techniques through the JADO process uh, for mid-band going forward? You know, the JADO organization has been around for decades, and I think it's really one of the crown jewels of uh, AEA or at least Navy AEA. And as, you know, I I listen to your podcasts and, and read other things and people talk about, hey, we need to go fast. In part of my mind, I'm going, we already have done this. JADO does this every day. And and what JADO is, for people that aren't familiar, is it's a group of people we have across the country that are aware of what today ALQ99 can produce. They also monitor the threats, and then they are continuously improving our jammer techniques. So if a threat changes, they tweak the jammer technique. And those updates are actually pushed out to the fleet on a monthly basis. So it's not in some sort of long, drawn-out development cycle. It is, you know, a group of people that is constantly monitoring the threat and tweaking the jammer assignments. And they have a companion organization that the headquarters for both uh, operations is out in Point Magoo, uh, NOC WD Point Magoo. Their companion organization is use electronic warfare database support that is doing the same thing for receiver systems. In a previous job, I, I one of my products was the ALQ218, the receiver system in the Growler. Uh, and they're doing the same thing where they look at intelligence and post-flight files coming off operational Growlers, because the, the Growler is out there uh, observing things. And then they're making adjustments to those receiver files. Uh, and they don't just do it for Growler, they support P8s, E2s, H60s, a number of platforms. So when we talk about going fast, I think at least on the software, the mission data side, we're kind of already doing that. Could we be faster? Could we turn things in days? Sure. Might need some artificial intelligence to help us there. I, I think what we really need to work on is how do we go equally as fast on the hardware side? Because on the hardware side, we're still locked into the five, ten year process. Um, and, and that's where I think open systems architectures really holds holds the promise, right? Where mm-hmm. I can start incrementally updating my hardware on a faster timescale. Because that's, Jado does amazing work and then they get up to the point where they go, the universal exciter or universal exciter upgrade is the really the brains of the LQ99 that generates the waveform. So Jado will say, well, hey, there's this new radar and I want to jam it in this way. But gee, the UEU can only... Generate this kind of waveform, which is another reason why we're so excited to get to NextGen Jammer midband, because its waveform generation capabilities are uh, significantly higher than what the UU can do.
0: We have time for uh, one more question, and I want to kind of and I want to move to the NextGen Jammer as a joint program uh, with our international partners. Sure. Can you discuss a little bit about how your office is working with uh, other countries like Australia to field uh, the system on an international scale?
1: Yeah, so Australia is a full cooperative partner on Next Generation Jammer, period. So mid-band, low-band, and high-band. Currently, we have projects underway uh, for mid-band, which includes production, sustainment, and follow-on development. For Next Gen Jammer low-band, Australia is in it at the beginning. I have six Australian officers in my office, Uh, so I have cooperative partners here. I mean, we're working side by side on a daily basis and we're reaching back to Australia, constantly figuring out, you know, what are their needs? What are their desires? One other thing I'll mention is we just released the request for proposals for our LRIP3. Uh, So I mentioned Next Gen Jammer MidBand is in low rate initial production. LRIP1, the initial lot was awarded right after the milestone, back in the summer. LRIP 2 was actually a negotiated option as part of that contract. So one contract with both LRIP 1 and LRIP 2. Again, thanks to some amazing support by the Navy, we were able to get all the funding under uh, CR. So we actually awarded our LRIP 2 option two days before Christmas. So in December, LRIP 2 went on. And then LRIP 3 is important because... Not only is it that continue increase in number of pods, but LRIP 3 are, includes the first Australian pods. So a lot of close coordination with Australia, making sure that they get the right number of spares, the right number of support equipment. So th- that's kind of the state of play uh, with Australia.
0: All right. Well, that that is all the time we have for today. Thank you, Captain Reader, for uh, joining me on From the Crow's Nest. I uh, look forward to keeping in touch and uh having you on the show again and because you have a lot of other programs in your portfolios that we can take some time to talk about, but I I do appreciate you taking time out to be with me here today.
1: No, I really appreciate it, Ken. Thanks so much and it's always a pleasure.
0: That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I want to thank our episode sponsor, Raytheon Intelligence in Space, delivering disruptive technologies that their customers need to succeed in any domain against any challenge. Their Electronic Warfare Systems product line offers best value, combat proven solutions in electronic attack, electronic protection and electronic support. Learn more at RaytheonIntelligenceInSpace.com. Finally, please tell your friends and colleagues about our podcast and our sister podcast, The History of Crows, and help others discover them by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Thanks for listening.